This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. Hello, welcome to another XS Long Player. I'm Jim, and today on the podcast, I'm going to be guiding you through another classic album. Today, with the help of the very lovely man that is Alex Kapranos of Franz Ferdinand. We're going to be talking about their debut album, their eponymous debut album, just means it's named after them, that came out back in 2004 and contains some absolute bangers as well. Alex is going to be sharing some stories about the early days of the band, how they came up with their very unique sound, and even the hidden message that is within their top 20 single, Michael big album this by the way not only is it nominated for a mercury music prize but it also won a grammy for best alternative album and has sold almost four million copies worldwide so let's do it franz ferdinand by franz ferdinand the story told by alex kapranos alex kapranos welcome to the xs long player thank you nice to be here Let's start off this look back at your debut album, self-titled debut album. Take me back to 2003, 2004. It seemed to me, and I was working for another radio station that was playing kind of indie rock songs at the time, it seemed that Franz Ferdinand just kind of exploded out of nowhere in 2004 and suddenly became one of the biggest indie bands in the UK. Did it feel meteoric to you or was it, in your eyes, a bit of a slower burn? (laughs) <laughs> it's funny because it, it, it's true for both simultaneously like, like uh it did explode very very quickly you know uh we played our first gig in 2002 summer of 2002 and that record came out in february or march february 2004 mm. so you know it's, it's, it, it, it was quite a fast sort of like move from first gig to that that record exploding everywhere however uh, it wasn't quite as fast as that in reality because, you know, I, I was I was 31 when that record came out and uh, I'd been playing in in bands up in Glasgow for over a decade before that. And I think it'd been a really, really, you know, I'd, I'd started writing songs when I was 15 and I'm, I'm guessing it was like over half a lifetime's worth of working towards that moment. And like, like, so like working out what my sound was and working, working out my ideas and working out how to perform. It's funny, like, um, it was national album day on Saturday, the, the 15th there. And, uh, I I've been an ambassador for na- national album, um, album day this year. And the theme is probably, as you know, like debut albums. Mm. And uh, I was writing a piece about it and I was saying 
how important a debut album is because you only get one opportunity to make your debut album. And I should know because it took me three times to get it right. That's (laughs) that's kind of true because I was in a couple of other bands that both released debut albums that kind of, you know, maybe sold a couple of hundred copies each, you know, like, like, you know, there were great records to make at the time, but it probably wasn't until I did the Franz Ferdinand record that I really, really got it right. So yeah, to come back to your original point, it was immediate and meteoric and a long time coming both at the same time. You mentioned your sound and it was a very different sound to a lot of the indie rock out there. I mean, in 2003, there were a lot of bands coming through. A lot of it quite harshly now gets termed as indie landfill but i think the music that you were making really stood out as something different were you conscious that you were making music in your own space that you were kind of bucking the trend at the time well well, it's funny you mentioned that because those bands that tend to get that term of abuse which i really hate i won't even say it because i i find it so obnoxious and it, it 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 came from a particular portion of uh the critical world who were very pro pop and very anti-band and I understand why it came about because like in the late 2000s there was a glut of bands and it always happens like this always happens in any kind of movement in music where if something appears out of out of the blue and it becomes successful against the expectations of tastemakers or to use that archaic term uh, and labels or whatever, then the labels want to cash in and mm. they'll sign anything that sounds remotely like that and totally over flood the, uh, the the airwaves with kind of music, which is a, well, maybe not quite as good a version of that particular niche of music. And I think that's what happened with indie to a degree later on. There were some things that were just maybe getting more attention than they necessarily, not necessarily terrible bands, but maybe were maybe getting more attention than they warranted mm. and people got sick of it. So to come back to answer your question, when we, when we first appeared, like, like when we first got the band together, we felt certainly in Britain, there wasn't really the kind of music that we wanted to make in the mainstream. Like the, the mainstream for me was dominated because it was in that weird period after Britpop, but yeah. before that 2000s kind of like like uh, band kind of wave happened. So it was like when Bob and I got, we're in the, the kitchen talking about the band, the, the music that was on there, was, I remember very distinctly, like the most exciting things that were on the, the radio at that time were Eminem and, oh, well, I forgot the name of it. Um, it was that German band that had like a, it was like a, an electro pop kind of like version of a computer game sort of thing anyway there was nothing <laughs> like that there was beginning to be a little bit of stuff coming through from the states like we're beginning to see bands like the white stripes and yeah. interpol and the strokes appearing but it felt very much like they were from a different world and while i appreciate and the hives as well coming over from uh, sweden too i thought what they were doing was cool but different from what we wanted to make and it really did feel at that time we were kind of like doing something that was out on our own mm-hmm. and it really felt like that we were kind of like going against what was commercially popular at that time kind of at odds with what was popular amongst the i don't know the hip kids in glasgow and, and the scene that we were in, in glasgow everybody was coming out of that sort of post-rock sort of period and the all the bands were playing sort of like quite impenetrable post post-rock 
you know, again, yeah. I guess you'd had a band like Mogwai who'd done a fantastic version of it, and then everybody was doing like a kind of uh, maybe not quite as good a version of it later <laughs> on. And so we we felt that we were kind of like rebelling against two different camps simultaneously. Like uh, again, uh, there was the sort of like the gentle acoustic guitar kind of bands that were r- vaguely indie, like your, your kind of Star Sailors and your uh, Cold Plays, the kind of pro- post-Travis bands. Like mm-hmm. we wanted to play something that had a bit more edge. We wanted to play something that was dance floor. We wanted to play something that, that had melodies that was better that, that were better than the pop music that we heard on the radio. You know, like melody's always been important to me. And so I guess there were a million things in our minds that we wanted to rebel against. And I think maybe that, was what formed our sound as much as anything else. Yeah, and also, also like, we did want to play dance music, but play it as a raw band. Because, like, we did go to clubs a lot, uh, and we, we would listen to dance music. We loved mm. dance music, but, like, it was like the dance music kids just wanted to play with synths and drum machines, and the and the band kids didn't want to dance. And, like, it was kind of like, oh damn quite enjoyed doing both of those things you know mm. and uh and so and it felt that when bands had tried to like bring elements of dance music and particularly in the 90s and the previous decade it had been by trying to introduce the sounds and to to great success as well i, I think of bands like the happy mondays or primal scream with screamadelica like that sort of like early 90s kind of like fusing of those worlds it was always like by bringing in samples and beats and that sort of thing and like bringing it in that way whereas we kind of like inverted that and took the dynamics of the dance floor like like sort of like we're thinking like how to how songs are arranged Hmm. in a piece of dance music like breaking down to the kick drum like putting the emphasis on the hi-hat like seeing everything in this kind of like linear sort of way that breaks down in, in dynamics and bring that into the format of a band playing it very raw it was like almost like so like house music played by the beatles in the cavern club or something like that was the way we were kind of kind of thinking about it yeah i guess all those things together all mished up and mangled together kind of gave us our sound did that work for you and against you at the same time trying to do something different because when the first single dropped darts of pleasure that landed at number 44 in the single charts and the album went on to be a phenomenal success i think got to number three in the album charts but in terms of a debut single did that feel like a bit of a disappointment the fact it got it, it only he says only inverted commas got to number 44. oh my god at the time we couldn't believe that we'd got to 44. we were like, like, like whoa we're in the charts can you believe that because <laughs> I, I guess none of us had ever experienced anything like that before so for me like it's like we got into the top 50 can you believe that like 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 yeah. and, and it, it seemed phenomenal to us that we had managed to do that and i i guess that's because the world that we'd come from and the world that we were existing in the time which was like super super underground you know like as i said we were like throwing our own gigs like like playing in the uh in the chateau and like in in, in these totally word of mouth kind of venues and nobody really really knew what we were doing and to get there yeah it, it kind of felt like like a real achievement and it didn't really prepare us for what was yet to come because like it did kind of go a bit bananas later on when the yeah. first album came out but it's interesting though like i think because we did sound kind of odd compared to the other music which was popular at that time, it didn't necessarily appeal to the kind of A&R guys from major sure. labels. Like, I remember a couple came up to see us 
playing in Glasgow because there'd been a, a, a bit of a word of mouth about us in London, but they were all a bit kind of like, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know. And they kept on saying things like, like we, we, we know how we can make you sound more commercial. We'll put you in with a producer who like help you with your arrangements. And like, I was like, kind of like no, like we, we, like, <laughs> sound. Like, we like what we're doing. Like we, we like having this edge. We, we like not sounding like the other stuff, which is around about at the moment. And I, I think the way A and R guys at that time—I don't know how it is now—but like there always seems to be a herd mentality amongst A and R guys that they would look at what was successful and then look for the next version of that mm. and try and make it more successful. And I've seen that pattern repeating over and over in the years. And there are very few who want to actually take a risk and go for something that does sound different from what's around about at the moment because, well, I guess there's no template. There's no yeah. kind of like example of it having gone before. And that's why we were really lucky to meet Lawrence Bell from Domino Records, who uh, who kind of saw us and went, yeah, I like you the way you are. I'll stick <laughs> out like that. That's great. Went, yeah, and he, he, he got it and he got our attitude and like he, he understood that it was more than just the sound. It was the other influences that were coming in as well, like the films that we liked, the books that we liked, the art that we liked. Everything comes together to make up your, your sound and your identity. I want to ask you to pick a specific memory off the album in a moment. It can be related to a track. It might be a moment in that track. It might be a memory that comes from it, good or bad. It's completely up to you. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about one specific track on the album, if that's all right, because I wanted to highlight the track Michael, which is a song that's kind of got this homoerotic undertone to it, which I think even in 2003 was a brave call to make a song like that on a debut album. Did it feel brave at the time? And did anyone, and I'm thinking here going back to the conflicts with record execs and A&R guys, did anyone try and talk you out of including that on the album? No, they definitely didn't. And I definitely didn't feel particularly brave for writing mm. it at the time. Like, like, I didn't even think about it. When I was writing the songs at that time, I, I was writing about different things like but a large part like something things that i was feeling things i was experiencing books i'd read films i'd watched you know like like things that were moving in my life but a lot of those songs were about the people around about me and things that were happening to us and the social circle that we were in and like you know like songs like like jacqueline for example was literally about jacqueline and two guys both called gregor and different things that happened in in, in their life Tell It Tonight was a similar kind of a thing, and uh, so was Alfaxa, and so was Michael. It mm. was literally about something. The song was written about something that had happened the night before. We were together round at Nick's house, and this event had happened the night before. And uh, I came up with the the riff, you know, the, diddly diddly diddly, mm. the, the riff that's at the beginning, and then, so like, I, I, as I was playing the chords for the chorus, I was just start singing and I start singing about what happened the night before. And we didn't think about it. The guys in the band were amused in the same way they were amused by Jacqueline or they were amused by Tell It Tonight or our facts are just like, oh, I, we know what that's about. You know, that that's funny. Like, we know exactly who the, the, the characters are on this, you know, and, and that's kind of cool. But we didn't think it was necessarily a brave thing in fact it, it kind of confused me a bit at the time that there was a fuss made about it because right. w- why should there be a fuss made about singing about a guy rather than singing about a girl like what's what's the big deal and it, the funny thing is like 20 years later i think that's more the case i, th- I think 
nobody would think twice about that now. You know, like, like, yeah. uh, and, and but, I think but it's, of... it's like music discovery. As you say someone's got to do it first. It's like it's very easy to plow the safe path and do the same thing, but it takes someone to do something different in order to make the different the norm. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But for me, it was purely instinctively. Like I, I wasn't doing it in a way to to make a statement or to like cause trouble or anything like that. It was just like, maybe it's because I just didn't give a damn, you know, like, and I, I think that, I think that's the best attitude you got to have as a songwriter. Don't, don't give a damn, you know, like just sing about something that's honest and true and, and it'll probably be pretty good. The funny thing is like, I, I had a realization quite recently, maybe just a couple of years ago that Michael is kind of the inverse of a Bowie song. It's kind of the inverse of John. I'm only dancing, you know. Like in, mm. in John, I'm only dancing. Like like he's saying, like I'm only dancing. She turns me on. Don't get me wrong. I'm only dancing. And so it's like, so it's him singing to his boyfriend. It's okay if I'm flirting with this girl. Don't get jealous about it. And Michael was kind of like the inverse of that. I mean, I'm not going to go into details about who the characters were, but it yeah. was kind of like somebody upsetting their girlfriend because they were dancing with Michael and only recently like it was I heard John I'm only dancing played out somewhere and I was like oh man it's the inverse of Michael (laughs) so yeah so I guess Bowie had done it 20 years before we had the other thing I've heard about that track and I'd like to know whether this is fact or fiction because I've never checked out for myself but I've heard there's a secret message on it that if you play a portion of it backwards yeah there is so we had this thing that we wanted and we still do it like we always put a a backward we record a backwards message uh on the album because i used to be obsessed with this when i was a kid like the idea of uh there being backwards messages and like i remember like knackering the 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 needle on my mum's record player trying to play that bit at the end of sergeant pepper backwards to like try and work out what they were saying and stuff like that and like trying to listen for it in heavy metal records like there was something in queen like i remember mm. I, I remember one of my pals at school told me when i was about 10 the if you played another one bites the dust backwards it says i like to smoke marijuana (laughs) (laughs) and so i remember knackering my mum's copy of queen's greatest (laughs) trying to play it backwards like and it does kind of sound like (laughs) it definitely doesn't say i like to but why would you go all the bother of doing that as well to say something as banal as i like to smoke marijuana (laughs) Anyway, so we loved that idea, and but particularly there'd been that sort of like all the sort of like tabloid scandals in I guess in the eighties about satanic messages being put backwards, and like like all these sort of like dark evil messages put backwards into songs, and how they corrupted people and they made them go out and do terrible deeds, and we thought it would be very funny to put a very positive message and play it and play it backwards in a song. And so if you do, I think it's in the riff, uh, just before the second verse comes in, there's a sound that goes, yeah, you like some backwards kind of sound. And it's Bob saying into a microphone, call your mother, she worries about you. (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) So yeah, I guess it was us just sort of like, yeah, inverting the the whole backwards. Yeah, but it reminds me, I'll have to do one for the next record as well. Definitely. So pick me a moment off this album. Like I say, it can be musical, it can be a memory from being in the studios, whatever you like. But there's one memory, when I think back to the recording session of that album, there's one memory that always comes straight back to me. That was recording the song 40 Feet. It's the last song on the album. I don't know if it was the last song we recorded. I don't think it was, but 
you know, when you go in, and particularly when we went in at that time, we, we didn't have a lot of time in the studio. You know, like it was the first album. We didn't have a lot of money to spend. So, like, you know, we'd learned the songs. We knew how to play them. We just recorded them one after the other in the studio. And so we'd start, I guess, in the morning or whatever and go through right up to the night until we'd, we'd finished. And 40 Feet was the last song that was recorded on that particular day. And we recorded that album in Malmo, which is in the south of Sweden. It's just on the tip of the landmass, right opposite uh, Copenhagen. In fact, there's a bridge that goes over and then turns into a tunnel between the two. And it was summer of 2003. And one of those beautiful Scandinavian summer nights where the light never quite disappears, but it's just this kind of like murky twilight instead. And the the lighting was very low in the studio. There were some low lamps and... uh, the guys who, who ran that place had sort of perfect Swedish taste, you know, like like that that great attention for detail. Hmm. The atmosphere was, oh, you know, I'm getting tingles on my spine just <laughs> thinking about it. Like it was really, really beautiful. And I just remember just playing that song and like like how moving the atmosphere hmm. was and, and like like how really special it felt. And just like as the, the last notes sort of died away, just feeling it, oh yeah, that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. How do you feel about this album now, Alex? You're almost 20 years away from its making. Well, I guess, actually, it's 19 years since it came out. It must be 20 years since you actually made the album. It was well-decorated, Mercury Music Prizes, Brit Awards, Grammy Awards, not to mention the three and a half million copies that it shifted. When you look back on it now, do you listen to it and go, yep, nailed it? Or do you listen to it and go, oh, I wish, wish we'd done this or I wish we'd done that? Well, I don't listen to it. That's the thing. Like, like uh, it, it, it's kind of one of the fun things that I've had in doing the hits to the head record that we've just done the the, the compilation record. I, I went back to listen to the songs again. I, I've got. I think a lot of other musicians are the same. Once you've made a record, once you've recorded it, that's it done. You know, and it's not for you. It's for the rest of the world. Sure, you enjoy playing those songs live, but you don't go back and listen to your own music unless you're some kind of weird, nutty, psychopathic <laughs> kind of ego case. You know, like like you know, the, the, that record's not for you. It's for the rest of the world. And so I, I have listened to it. Like I listened to it again the last time. Apart from like choosing the songs for hits to the head, the last time I listened to it was we were the first band that Tim Burgess asked to do a, a, a Twitter listening party with. Mm back at the beginning of the lockdown in, in March uh, of, of that year. And we did our first album and uh, I listened to that. And that was probably the first time in decades that I'd, I'd actually listened to it. And I really enjoyed it. It sounded good. It, sound, it still sounded very fresh. And um, yeah, I, I don't think there's any point getting into, oh, I should have changed that. I should have changed this. Or maybe I would have done that differently. Like, what's the point? It, it, it isn't the you now who made it. It's yeah. the you of 18 years ago who made it. And leave him alone to, to get on with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, yeah, like, like I said, I was, so I was 30 when I made that record. And uh, I, I wouldn't have wanted some 50-year-old version of myself interfering with what I was doing <laughs> then. In the same way that as I make a record now, I wouldn't want the 30-year-old version of myself interfering with it. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with the way it was. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your memories from the making of that debut classic album. So thanks very much for your time. And I know you're making a new album at the moment, so good luck with that and can't wait to hear it. Oh, thanks very much, Jim. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. <laughs> Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester.
Nice one. That is it for today's Excess Long Player. Cheers to Alex. What a lovely man. Talking about Franz Ferdinand's debut album, Franz Ferdinand. If you liked that, I'm sure there's other podcasts in this series that you'll like equally. Check back in the timeline, see if you can find your favourite artist talking about your favourite album and get stuck in. Plus, there are more in the pipeline. There are some really cool episodes coming in the next few weeks, actually. So make sure you've clicked subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to podcasts. And I'll see you next time. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.